Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. We're going to be talking about labor and delivery triage today. So this is going to be everybody who comes in to labor and delivery and has a complaint before the resident goes to see them. A lot of times you're going to have the opportunity as the student on labor and delivery to go evaluate this patient and tell the resident what you think. Do they need to be admitted? Do they need to be sent home? Do they need to be observed a little bit longer because we don't know what's going on? These are all the most common complaints that you will see in labor and delivery triage. So the first thing you're going to want to know about any woman that you evaluate or see on labor and delivery is her one-liner. The one-liner is going to include her age, her G's and P's, her gestational age, and the reason that she's there. So G's and P's, again, are gravity and parity. The gravity is the number of times this woman has been pregnant in her life, including all pregnancy outcomes. So ectopic pregnancies, women often forget to count, ask specifically about those, miscarriages, losses, term, and preterm delivery, so that you can uh, fill out your G-T-P-A-L. So the four numbers that come after your P's are T, which is your term delivery, P for your preterm delivery, A for your abortion, so that's therapeutic abortions and spontaneous abortions, and ectopic pregnancies, and L, the number of living children she has. So T-P-A-L, remember those four. So that'll be the first thing you say for everybody, their age and then their G's and P's. And then their gestational age. So how far along is she? We get the gestational age by asking the woman her due date. And if you're using Epic or most of the medical record systems that uh, major hospital systems have now, it's going to calculate her gestational age for her. But you should always confirm the due date uh, and make sure that that calculation is correct. I always have, I carry an app on my phone with me everywhere so I can also calculate that gestational age myself and make sure it actually agrees with the computer or what the nurse has reported to me. And then the reason she's there. So, for example, this is a 38-year-old G3 P2002, meaning she's currently pregnant, but she's had two term deliveries before, at 38 and 3, who's here for evaluation of regular painful contractions, meaning she's here to see if she's in labor. She's here to see if she's ready to have the baby. The... um, One-liner is going to tell you most of what you need to know about the patient before you go get her history. So ideally, you get all those things before you walk in the room. If not, that's going to be the first thing you want to know. So let's talk a little bit about triaging a patient on labor and delivery. Let's stick with our example of the G3P2 who comes in to see if she's in labor. So she comes in and says, I think I'm in labor. What is labor? What? How are you going to diagnose if somebody's in labor? So a lot of people are going to say contractions. Well, yeah, contractions are part of labor, but a lot of women have early contractions, what we call Braxton Hicks contractions, or these practice contractions that aren't actually labor. So what sets apart fake or early labor from actual labor that's making active change? And I just said the keyword, which is change. I need to see change in her cervix. So I need to have regular painful contractions and I need to have cervical change. So to determine if she's in labor, we're going to put her on the monitor. And we say the monitor, that means two things. It means looking at baby's heart rate, but also there's a TOCO, which will show me, if placed accurately, the contractions in the rhythmic pattern that are hopefully there. So 
I want to know a couple things about her contractions. When did they start? Have they been getting more painful? And then if she's having any other symptoms of labor, other symptoms, the four things I ask everybody who walks into triage is, are they having contractions, which this woman already said yes? Do they have any leaking fluid? Meaning, does she think her water bag broke? Has she had a gush or even just a consistent slow trickle? Are they having any vaginal bleeding? Vaginal bleeding can be a concerning sign for some certain reasons that we'll talk about in a little bit, or it can be something we call cervical change, bloody show, which is the cervix is stretching open and is bleeding a little bit while it does. And then finally, is she feeling baby move? So fetal movement is an important sign of fetal well-being, and I want to make sure that she's actively feeling baby move. So I ask her all those other things. Everything else is normal. She's not having leaking fluid. She hasn't noticed any bleeding and baby's moving well. So we're just here essentially to find out if she is in labor. So you do your full history. I want to know, does she have any medical problems during this pregnancy? I always ask specifically about, do you have any, high, any problems with your blood sugar or any problems with your blood pressure that you're aware of, either outside of pregnancy or in this pregnancy? And I usually ask anything else that your doctor was watching or worried about during your pregnancy. People won't consider a lot of these things health problems or medical problems, but I want to know about them. I want to know if she has gestational diabetes, but a lot of people consider that a transient condition and they won't offer it up. So ask specifically about it. The other thing I always ask specifically about is asthma. I want to know if people have a history of asthma. The reason being it impacts certain medications that we can give after delivery to help mom's uterus contract and slow down her bleeding. That is hemabate. If you have asthma, I can't give you hemabate. And we'll talk about OB medications in a bit. So those are the important parts of the medical history. Obstetrically, I want to know, has she had other children? Were they vaginal deliveries? Did she have any complications during those deliveries? Anything that I'm going to need to worry or watch out for throughout this labor and delivery course. Has she ever had a blood transfusion before? And if so, was it in the setting of a delivery or pregnancy? Um, and then if she's had any abdominal surgeries before, essentially just preparing myself for just in case we have to do a C-section for any reason, I want to know about that. I want to know if anybody's ever had to do surgery in her belly before, so I know how difficult it will be. After that, you should find out um, allergies, medications, the usual history, and then you'll usually come out and report off to the resident who's going to be evaluating the patient. The resident or the nurse, whoever at your facility who checks people's services in labor or in the labor and delivery triage area will then go in and check her cervix. Typically, in order to admit somebody, I'm going to want you to be somewhere around four centimeters, or I need you to demonstrate change to me. And this is for simply uh, evaluating for labor. If they're ruptured or have another reason to be admitted, that's something separate. But if it's just for sheer labor, I'm probably going to want you to be at least four centimeters, somewhere around there. Or be requesting pain medications, unable to tolerate this um, the level of contractions or pain at home. The reason being... Early labor can wax and wane. It can last a long time. People's normal levels, hormonal levels of oxytocin are going to go up in, without their, within their diurnal rhythm and go back down. And so they'll space out when they get really hydrated and they'll get really close together when they're dehydrated. And I want to make sure that this is a sustained labor that she's going to be able to consistently hold with and actually deliver a baby, or she's going to need more of our help in medical intervention, which we can do when there's indication, but we don't usually like to do voluntarily without a good indication and without a reason. So we check her cervix. Let's say she's four centimeters. She's making change. We're going to go ahead and admit her. 
The other part of her cervical exam that you should be aware of, there's three things we report. Obviously, the most common one you're going to hear about are centimeters, and that's the diameter of the circle that is open in her cervix, within, within her cervix. So a four-centimeter diameter would mean that from one side to the other side, we've got four centimeters between where her cervix used to be touching. The other thing, we, um, the second portion of the exam is the effacement or the amount of thinning the cervix has done. A normal non-pregnant cervix is going to be about three to four centimeters long. um, And throughout labor, it should shorten until it's just a few millimeters long. And so we talk about how, what percent effaced it is. So how much it is thinned out. Um, And then the fourth thing, or the third thing is the station, baby station. So if if, um, baby's head, the biparietal diameter, so the portion of the baby's scalp just above their head, if it is how far behind or in front of mom's ischial spines it is. So when we're feeling in her... Um, within her vagina, we can feel the ischial spines, we feel the baby's head, and we determine is it above those ischial spines, in which case we give it a minus station, so minus two, minus three, minus four, above those ischial spines, or a plus station, plus one, plus two, plus three, below those ischial spines. And it just tells us how much descent the baby has made into mom's pelvis, or if it's not descending into her pelvis at all yet. So those are the basic components of just basic rule-out labor. So let's say we've checked her. She's 450 minus two. We think she's in labor. We're going to go ahead and admit her. Wonderful. That's one triage pretty much done with. Now you get called to another room to evaluate somebody who's coming in and reporting leaking fluid. So you need to evaluate her and see if her membrane's ruptured, if the amniotic sac is ruptured and this is amniotic fluid coming out. You'd be surprised by the number of women who come in and they think it's their water breaking, but it's actually could be they've coughed or laughed and it's actually pee, which is not uncommon when you're really pregnant and the baby's head is right on the bladder. Uh, Or it could be normal vaginal secretions and discharge that just, they normally change throughout pregnancy. So that it could be getting heavier or more concerning than it was before. So to evaluate somebody for rupture, there's a few things we do. First thing is we always do this via a speculum exam, unless there's just fluid everywhere and we can get a clean sample of the fluid from outside the vagina. But typically, we got to get the clean fluid from inside the vagina so it's not contaminated. So this is a speculum exam. So we do a speculum exam, and we're evaluating for three things. First thing is just looking. If I put the speculum in, open it up, and I can see clear fluid pooling in her vagina, we call that positive pooling. So that is a positive sign that her membranes have ruptured. If um, I then take a sample of the fluid to do two things with. First thing, I put it on a pH paper. Or some, some hospitals have this built into a cotton swab. It's a cotton swab with an indicator on it. Whatever. If that indicator paper turns, it's normally a yellow color at baseline. If it turns to a dark blue, dark green, that is a positive. It means you have the correct pH for this to be amniotic fluid. Other things can turn the pH, including blood. So if they have bloody show, you can't use the pH test. Um, And semen. So you got to make sure to find out when the last time she had unprotected sex was and if this could be semen or if it looks viscous more so like semen. It's another clue. Um, And the third thing you're looking for is ferning. And for ferning, we have to take a sample of the fluid under the micro and put it on a slide, let it dry, usually five to 10 minutes on the slide and put it under the microscope. Looking under the microscope, there's a very distinctive ferning pattern. There are also cervical mucus ferns that you can see. So if in, by instead of touching the um, 
very water-like fluid, you accidentally touch the viscous cervical mucus, you're, you can get a false positive ferning. The ferns do look a little bit different, but it's hard sometimes to tell the difference, especially for beginners. So making sure that when, if you're the one getting to do the speculum exam, that you're touching just the stuff that looks like pure water. It might be a little discolored water, but it shouldn't be thick. Before you put that on the slide, if you see positive ferning, another sign that it's ruptured. Some hospitals have different protocols. Some will say you have to have two out of three of those things to be considered ruptured. Other places want all three. And some places just go based on what your provider, so what the resident or the attending says based on the exam, their gestalt. Um, be one, two, or three of them positive. Um, so that'll probably vary place to place. And so throughout that thing, I usually tell patients when I go in, those are the three things I'm looking for. Sometimes all three of those things will be negative. And the mom reports that she had a gush of fluid, but hasn't had any leaking since. And so, and she just walked into triage, maybe whatever was left in her vagina has already passed. And there's nothing in there when you look in there. Two tricks for finding the right fluid. One, with the speculum in the vagina, you can have them cough, Valsalva. Sometimes you can force a little bit more of that water out. Or if they Valsalva and you see urine come out of their urethra, that's another sign that maybe it wasn't their fluid leaking. Um, the other thing you can do is sometimes we'll have them put on a pad and walk around. See if gravity can pull down a little bit more of that fluid, have them walk or have them sit up straight and repeat the speculum exam. The third thing is to do an ultrasound and see if they still have enough fluid left inside. If we can look at what's called a maximum vertical pocket in MVP or an AFI, an amniotic fluid index, which is four of the biggest pockets you can find. Um, and if those look okay, if they have an adequate amount of fluid, then that's a good sign that's reassuring that maybe they also haven't ruptured. On the other hand, if they have inadequate fluid or if it looks overall low, that's another sign that maybe they have ruptured and maybe I should give this another try, have her sit up, have her walk, or do a repeat exam. So those are going to be the two most common things you probably see in triage. Am I in labor and did my water break? Because people are excited to meet their babies. They're going to come in as soon as they think that one of those two things has started. Other things that we worry about seeing in triage, people come in for vaginal bleeding. It can be worrisome if, if they start bleeding and they say, you know, is this my blood? Is this baby's blood? Do I need to be worried about this? Typically what I tell people is when I see them in clinic, there are certain conditions where I'm going to want to know about almost every single drop of blood you have vaginally. And those are ones where your placenta isn't normal. Your placenta or the baby's umbilical cord isn't normal. Meaning that placenta, if it's lying low over the cervical os and it's a placenta previa, meaning if your cervix starts to open, it's the placenta that's bleeding. It can easily be, it's baby's blood, not your blood. Mom can, mom can spot a little bit. She has a reserve. Baby doesn't have much of a reserve. So I worry a lot more if it's baby's blood. So if, it's a, if I know she has a placental issue like a placenta previa, or if she has what's called a vasa previa, meaning it's not the placenta lying over the cervical os, but it's the baby's cord. Again, blood from the cervix would then mean it's probably babies. The third thing we worry about bleeding is a, called a placental abruption. This is when the placenta prematurely begins to separate from that uterine wall. This is separating baby's blood supply and baby's oxygenation from mom's blood, which is providing the oxygen. So mom is bleeding into her uterus, and sometimes it can be concealed and it won't come out through the vagina. And other times she will notice heavy vaginal bleeding, but it can cause significant fetal distress and fetal mortality, morbidity, and maternal mortality and morbidity because moms can hide a surprising amount of blood within their uterus before it actually begins to come up. 
Things associated with uh, placental abruption are most common ones you'll see on your uh, shelf exam will be smoking, so nicotine, cocaine, often it's drug use. Also trauma can cause abruption, it can cause separation um, in that coup, counter coup uh, movement of the placenta pulling away from the uterus if it's uh, say a car accident and they're hit from behind and the placenta becomes ripped off the uterus a little bit. So those are the three main times I'm really worried about bleeding in pregnancy. And those are going to be second and third trimester vaginal bleeding. If somebody has none of those three things, if I can see that the baby looks wonderful on the monitor, mom doesn't have a low-lying placenta, her placenta is documented as elsewhere, or I throw an ultrasound on it and the placenta is elsewhere, then I can calm down. I can say, all right, now let's figure out the other source, but it's not one of the ones that needs to be emergently dealt with. Unfortunately, if I do the opposite, I put the ultrasound on and I see her placenta is super low and it's lying over her cervix and she's having this heavy bleeding, that could be an obstetric emergency and require urgent delivery um, of the baby if the baby isn't tolerating that well. So that wraps up vaginal bleeding. So let's talk about another common complaint. So we've talked about three out of the four things I said we ask everybody in triage about. We ask everybody in triage about contractions, leaking fluid, vaginal bleeding, and the fourth one is fetal movement. So say a woman comes in and says, I haven't felt my baby move all day. So what can we do to reassure ourselves that baby is doing well, even though mom isn't feeling baby move? Because like I said earlier, feeling baby move is one of the best signs that baby is doing well. So we can do a couple things. We can obviously put an ultrasound on and we can see if baby's moving well. And if we see baby moving on the ultrasound, that's pretty reassuring. Um, but the most common thing is people are going to put them on the, the monitor, like we said, the monitor earlier, so the external fetal monitoring, which is going to take a look at baby's heart rate. There's four components of baby's heart rate that we look at um, and evaluate to see if baby is doing well. We look at the baseline, and we want that baseline to be somewhere between 110 and 160. That's a normal fetal heart rate. And then we want to look at how much is it changing beat to beat, or what is what we call the variability. Normal variability is somewhere between 5 beats per minute and 25 beats per minute. And if it's more than 25 beats per minute, it's what's called marked, which is not great, but it's not a really worrisome sign either as long as it's transient. So if baby has a normal, what we call NST or a non-stress test, meaning a 20-minute period of this monitoring that looks overall reassuring, we can feel good that baby is doing well. It needs to have that normal variability, a normal baseline, and then two axels within 20 minutes. And axels are a period in which the base, the heart rate raises above the baseline, and it either tends to look like a hill or maybe a peak, a pointed peak, like the baby's heart rate goes up and comes right back down. Again, hard to describe in a podcast. Take a look at some examples. But what we want is a normal NST, a non-stress test. If 20 minutes trip looks good and it has accelerations, a normal baseline, normal variability, I can feel good that this baby is doing well even though mom's not feeling it move. Say overall though, it looks good, but it doesn't have any axles. We can try to stimulate the baby. So we can give baby a little bit of juice. Maybe mom hasn't eaten or had enough to drink during the day. Give mom some juice, some water, try to have her hydrate. Um, I can also do what's called vibroacoustic stim, which is a little machine that essentially buzzes at the baby. It vibrates a tiny bit and it makes a little bit of a noise and babies don't tend to love it. So they tend to move a little bit. It wakes them up, for example, if they're sleeping. Um, those are things I can do. The other thing I can do, if that still isn't reassuring, I can do what's called a BPP, a biophysical profile. And this is something that sometimes at some institutions, you have to send the patient to a sonographer in the formal ultrasound unit. But a lot of OBs and residents can also do this at the bedside in triage if we're actually concerned. 
And we do what's a BPP. A BPP has um, 10 points possible. It's on a point system. And what you want to do is have at least eight of those points. So two of the points being the NST. If the NST is not reactive, your maximum amount of points at that point is eight out of 10. Um, So that's why we need at least eight. So the four things I'm evaluating with the ultrasound, I'm evaluating baby's fluid. Do they have a normal amount of fluid around them in in the uterus? Does baby move well? And so I'm looking at two different types of movement. I want gross body movements, meaning they're moving their whole torso. They're wiggling, they're doing something. And then I want um, tone, which I see with flexion extension of the extremities. So I need to see baby um, either flexing their elbow, flexing their knee, kicking, something like that. Each of those things gets them two points. Why this is on a scale of 10 and not five, I don't know, because everything, it's either zero points or two points. So you get two points for the fluid, two points for um, tone, two points for gross body movement, and the last thing is breathing. So babies should be practicing breathing from a very early age. And what we want to see is 30 seconds of continuous effort to breathe. And so we do that by what you have to watch, and they get up to 30 minutes to complete this 30 seconds of breathing. And it's often the hardest thing to find. Um, But if they have 30 seconds of continuous efforts to breathe, good tone, good body movements, good fluid, they've got an eight out of 10 BPP. And I can be overall very reassured that baby's doing well, even if they didn't have those axles and things on the NST. So those are how I tell the baby is doing well. And then I usually talk to mom about doing kick counts at home, which are essentially, if they're not, if they're feeling like baby is subjectively moving less, sit down, take a glass of water, take a glass of juice, whatever you need, sit down and just Think only about baby and count the movements you feel over two hours. If you can feel at least eight or 10 movements in those two hours, baby's moving adequately. If you're still worried, I still tell moms, if you want to come in, we will always put the monitor on because I can't ever say never. You can never say never in obstetrics and we can put the monitor on and make sure baby looks good. If they still say no, it's just subjectively so much less than normal. That's okay. Reassurance is okay. That's part of our jobs. So those are the most common things that you're going to see in labor and delivery triage over the next few weeks. You're going to rule out people or rule in for labor. Those who have their water bag has broken and they are now ruptured. Those who have vaginal bleeding and those who have come in complaining of decreased fetal movement. Of course, there'll be other topics, but these are the most high yield. Good luck and have fun on labor and delivery. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new clerkship-ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a procedure-ready or clerkship-ready podcast for their specialty, pass along your information, and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.